So I was struggling to come up with a big idea for this sermon. I struggle every single week to come up with a big idea, so nothing new there from my perspective. And as I was reading a book by Ian Duguid, I came across this one little sentence, and I thought, you know, that's perfect. And so here it is. It's simple, it's so deep and so profound. God loves you. Isn't that wonderful? I think somebody here today needs to hear that because you're doubting God's love. You're wondering why things are happening in your life and you wonder, does he love me? Does he care? And so that big idea is for you. God loves you. It's the best news that I've ever heard in my life. God loves sinners. Does it ever get old to me? Nope. I hope it warms your heart today. I know you've probably heard it a million times, but I hope today it gets a little bit deeper into your heart. So we're just going to look at the first half of verse 12 today, the first 12 words of verse 12, and then we'll finish verse 12 next week. There's just so much goodness in this one single verse that we just need to squeeze all we can out of it. So that's what we're going to do today. So turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Paul is now calling on the Colossians to put on certain characteristics of the new man. Essentially, Paul is saying, put on Jesus. Be like Jesus, act like Jesus. Why? Because these attributes are what we see in Jesus. As disciples, we're called to reflect the image of our Savior. So it's important to know that this is who Jesus is in these verses. And because we are united to him by faith, the Holy Spirit then begins working these things out in our lives. Now, not perfectly, of course, we know that. But the Spirit is renewing us after the image of our Creator, slowly but surely. And part of that renewing is when these qualities in these verses 12 and on, when we see them in our life, that's the Spirit renewing us after the image of Jesus. So we put off the old man and we put on the new man. And the motivation to put on these things comes from the phrase, as God's chosen ones. So here's what Paul is saying. If you are a Christian, it is because God chose you. If you're a Christian, a disciple of Jesus Christ, the main reason why is because God chose you, because he decided to save you. And that's so plain in the verse, God's chosen ones. So Paul still has identity in mind here as we've looked over the last few weeks. The Colossians are God's chosen ones. That's who they are. They are in Christ. They are God's chosen ones. Another word that you will hear to describe this reality of being chosen by God is the word elect. And there are passages that use that word elect. Well, what does that mean? To be the elect of God or the chosen of God means that God decided to save us even before we ever knew that we needed to be saved. In eternity past, according to his infinite wisdom and in love, according to his will, God chose you, Christian. He put your name on the list. Your name was on the list of names that Jesus took with himself to the cross. 
And the reason why is because he chose you in eternity past. So when Paul says that we are God's chosen ones, he's saying that way before Genesis 1-1, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, chose which sinners would receive his mercy in Christ. Long before you ever wiggled in your mommy's tummy, long before you ever took your first breath, long before you ever sinned your very first sin, long before your first birthday, God chose you in Christ. And it's not because of anything in you. It's not because God looked down through time and saw that you would choose him, so he chose you. No, none of that at all. Paul is saying you are God's chosen ones because God chose you. He just chose you. He can do that. He's God. Charles Spurgeon said, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Listen, we would never choose God if he didn't choose us first. And we know that's true because as a Christian, as people who are saved by God's grace, we still stiff arm God, don't we? We still choose sin. We still want sin. We still chase after false lovers, our precious idols and our darling sins. So if we run from God and we stiff arm God and we chase after our idols and lovers and sins as his redeemed children. If we do that as his children, how much more would we push him away as an unbeliever? And we did as an unbeliever. We pushed God away. We would never choose him had he not first chosen us. So in love, God chooses sinners according to his mysterious, merciful will all to the praise of his glorious grace. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. Let me read it. And notice all the in him language here. Notice all the union with Christ language. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14. <clears throat> this is all true of you if you're trusting in Christ by faith. Paul said, but, says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us, in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So what Paul clearly says in Ephesians 1 is that God chooses, elects, predestined sinners in love according to his mysterious, merciful will, and it's all to the praise of his glorious grace. In love, he predestined us for adoption into his family. According to his will, not ours, Paul says, and it's all to the praise of his glorious grace, his glorious favor, giving us what we don't deserve. But you may ask, don't we choose to follow Jesus? Isn't there a gospel call to come to Jesus? Isn't there an invitation from Jesus to respond? Yes, it was our call to worship today from Matthew 11. Jesus says, come unto me. That's an invitation to respond to and come to Jesus. But God choosing us and us choosing God are not at odds. As Jesus himself highlights in John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So we have God the Father giving his chosen ones to his Son. But we have these chosen ones responding and coming to Jesus. So how do we reconcile this? How do we reconcile God choosing people and people choosing God? I've always loved what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, I never reconcile friends. They're friends. God choosing people and people choosing God. They're friends. They don't need to be reconciled. Here's what Spurgeon is saying. God choosing us doesn't erase our choosing him. If you are a Christian, it's because you really did choose him. What we must realize is there is a logical sequence here, though. God chose you before you chose him. And as the Holy Spirit regenerated you and made you alive in Christ because you were dead in your sins, as he made you alive in Christ, you as a person freely chose God because he had already chosen you. You couldn't and you didn't choose God when you were dead in sins because you were dead. Okay, Your dead great-great-grandfather cannot come up out of the grave right now, can he? And you couldn't come out of your spiritual grave. I couldn't come out of my spiritual grave unless the Holy Spirit made us alive. So you didn't choose God when you were dead in your sins. But when the Holy Spirit made you alive in Christ, when you heard the gospel... And the Holy Spirit made you alive in Christ. He regenerated you. That's the big theological word. He regenerated you when you were dead in your sins. He made you alive in Christ. When that happened, you chose God. You turned from sin and you placed your faith in Christ. You weren't a robot. The Spirit made you alive and then you followed him. But you couldn't do any of that if God did not choose you first. And then make you come alive in regeneration so that you could choose him by turning from sin and trusting in Christ. Is this a mystery? Absolutely. Do I understand it all? Absolutely not. I just remember that one, God's sovereign election and my choosing Jesus are not at odds. They are friends, as Charles Spurgeon said. They don't need reconciling. Now, lest we get caught up in theological arguments over Calvinism versus Arminianism, if you want to know what those are, just Google, okay? 
That's what I always tell my, my kids. Did you Google it? I, I Google everything. If I have a question, I just, if I, I'm looking for a Bible verse. I'm like, what's that Bible verse? I just go to Google and type in what little bit of it I know, and it'll pop up. So if you don't know about Calvinism and Arminianism, just Google it. But lest we get caught up in a theological argument over Calvinism versus Arminianism, we must remember that all this talk about election, all this talk about being God's chosen ones, it's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's all about Him. It's all to the praise of His glory. As we saw in verse 10 last week, Christ is all and in all. All the talk about election and predestination and God choosing us should lead us to worship, not fighting and arguing and saying something like, well, they're not a Christian. What did Paul say? He said, Christ is all and in all. He is in every believer, whatever theological position they hold on this. So wherever you land on the theological spectrum, Calvinist or Arminian, Google it, remember that Christ is in all and let it lead you to worship. Let it lead you to awe and wonder and not anger and pride. Jeff Metters says this, election isn't a bland, aimless, or monotone theological category. It's a multi-sensory glory of Christ, dazzling in high definition with a symphony of savory joys. Election is about us as saints, but not chiefly. Election is supremely about Christ, the one who has first place in everything, Colossians 1.18. Predestination is the backstory of your faith in Christ. Ephesians 1 reminds us of the goal of election, the praise of his grace. As far as I can tell, God didn't elect us to go punch holes in the theology of our brothers and sisters. The truth of election is meant to move you to praise the one who loved you before the foundation of the world and who will love you 10 billion years and counting from now. By the way, this book by Jeff Metters, Humble Calvinism, is one of the best books on the subject. If you want to know about Calvinism, what it is, it's one of the best ones to understand Calvinism and Arminianism. It's a short, easy read, very winsome. He's a very winsome writer. Don't think deep theological work. That's going to make your brain hurt. This is a, a very winsome book. Um, I think it will be beneficial to everyone here, even if you are already a Calvinist. I think you'll enjoy this book. Theology should lead us to worship, not war with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen, if your thoughts and your discussions and conversations and blog posts and tweets and social media comments about election and predestination and God choosing people, if that does not pull praise and worship out of your heart, you're doing theology wrong. If you fight about election and predestination with other Christians and you get angry or prideful or cocky or arrogant, you're doing theology wrong. You need to tell your theology, theology, go home, you're drunk. Theology and doctrine, especially the doctrine of election, God choosing us, should pull the doxology out of our heart. You should be singing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Because that's what Paul does in Ephesians 1. Three times, Paul says, to the praise of his glorious grace, Ephesians 1, 6. To the praise of his glory, Ephesians 1, 12. To the praise of his glory, Ephesians 1, 14. The doctrine of election should cause worship to spring from our hearts. 
because we are chosen in Christ. We don't deserve it. We cannot earn it in any way. We cannot be good enough. It's all of grace. It's a free gift. So what we're called to do is to cram that truth, stuff that truth into our hearts so that worship flows out. But not only are we chosen, Paul also tells us in verse 12 that we are holy and beloved. To be holy means that we are set apart to God. That's all it means. It means to be set apart for a special purpose. Things in the Old Testament were holy means they were set apart. Pots and pans were holy. Things were holy. There's nothing intrinsically moral about it per se. It's just that things were set apart. That's what it means to be holy. You are set apart. You belong to Jesus now. Christians, as disciples, we belong to God. We don't belong to us anymore. We used to belong to Adam. We've really never belonged to us. We either belong to Adam or we belong to Christ. To be holy means we are set apart. We belong to Jesus now. And if you belong to Jesus, does not, not that imply that he will take care of you? He will care for you, comfort you, meet your needs? To be holy means that we are set apart and now we belong to Jesus and we are his and he will take care of us. And what comfort that brings to our hearts. I belong to Jesus now. It's going to take care of me. There's a very comforting question in the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, question one, it's, it's outside of the Bible. It's one of two paragraphs that I've read more and probably read more than any other thing. The, the other one is the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter five on providence, the first paragraph. I read that often to be reminded of God's sovereignty, his providential care over my life. And then I read question one of the Heidelberg Catechism because it comforts me, it recalibrates me, it grounds me again when I'm all manic and freaking out about life. Here's what it says. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Isn't that good? That's what it means to be holy, to be set apart, to belong to Jesus. It means that he has paid for our sins. He set us free from the power of the devil. He preserves and protects our life so that not one single hair can fall from our body unless Jesus says, hey, hair, you can fall. He works all things together for our salvation. And the Holy Spirit assures us of eternal life and then empowers us to live for him. Those are the benefits and the joys of belonging to Christ. But then Paul says in verse 12 that we are his beloved. What a beautiful word. It's easy to just kind of read past this word and not pay much attention to it. But this word is actually pregnant with gospel truth. It's the same word that I just read that is used of Jesus to describe Jesus in Ephesians 1.6 where Paul says, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
He's talking about Jesus. One of my Greek professors in seminary, Dr. Harold Honer, in his commentary on Ephesians, says that this Greek word, beloved, refers to an only child to whom the parents had devoted all of their love. It also refers to one who is the only one of his or her class or type, but at the same time is particularly loved and cherished, or only beloved in an exclusive sense. So to be called beloved means that God loves you as if you were his only child. His exclusive one and only child. It means that the eternal love that God the Father has always had for his one and only son, Jesus, he now has for you as if you were his only child. I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? That God loves you as if you're his only child. So rub this truth into your pores this morning. God loves you. Make it personal. God loves you. Jesus wanted me to tell you that this morning. That he loves you. Let that sink in. God loves each one of us as if we were his only child. Can you imagine what it would be like to be the only kid that God had? Think of all the affection and love and care an only child receives. They get everything, don't they, from their parents. That's how God loves you, Christian. Because we've been united to Christ by the Spirit. He loves us as much and with the same kind of love that he loves his own son, Jesus. Can you imagine for a second how much love, affection, care, and devotion God would dole out on you if you were his only child? Well, that's what the word beloved means. And Christian, that's who you are. That's your identity. You can walk into to work tomorrow with a little bit of swagger in your step, a whole bunch of humility, but a little bit of swagger thinking, God loves me like I'm his only kid. This word beloved is also a perfect passive participle in Greek. Say that three times fast. Now, I know it probably doesn't give you goosebumps, but it's very significant. It's the kind of grammar that can give you goosebumps. When Paul uses the perfect passive participle in Greek, here's what it means. The perfect tense is something that happens in the past at a point in time, and the results continue. And then it's passive, which shows us that we don't make ourselves beloved. Rather, God is the one who sets his heart on us. He chooses us. He makes us his beloved. The perfect passive participle shows us that God will never stop loving you because God actually never started loving you. In our mind, we think there's a point in time, but, but since God is eternal and infinite, there's, he never started loving you. He has just always loved you. That'll make your brain hurt, won't it? God will never stop loving you because he never started loving you. He has always loved you in Christ. And if you are in union with Christ... If you were one of his chosen people, that means he never started loving you. You've always been in his heart, and you always will be. He's always loved you in Christ in eternity past. And if you are in Christ, he loves you unconditionally. The perfect passive participle shows us that there is nothing you can ever do to make God stop loving you. The reason he chose you is because he loves you and he has always loved you. As the prophet Jeremiah said, Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you 
with loving kindness. If you are a Christian, it is because God loved you in eternity past and he spent your entire life until the moment of faith. He spent his, your entire life drawing you with his loving kindness, drawing your heart to him. Beloved, what a wonderful word. Listen, anytime you see the word beloved in the New Testament, your mind should automatically flip back to this verse in the Old Testament in Song of Solomon or Song of Songs 710, which says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. In this verse, Jesus is the beloved and we are the desired ones, which means his heart is set on us. I mean, that's remarkable. When you think about the kind of people we are, he loves, us. he loves people like us. Can you imagine? You have people in your life that get on your nerves that you struggle to love. And yet the things that you do that are so offensive to a holy God pale in comparison. And yet he loves you. It's remarkable. So my fellow beloved, holy, chosen ones in Christ, this isn't just simile, an analogy, or some metaphor. Jesus' love for you, let's make it personal this morning, Jesus' love for you is more real than anything in your life. So rest in it today. Revel in it. Rejoice in it. And after you have done that, then rest in it some more. We are chosen. We are holy. We belong to Jesus, and we are his beloved. And so now what? In light of Jesus' amazing love for us, it should actually then shape and impact and transform all our relationships, which is why Paul tells the Colossians to put on some things. Look again at verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. So we're just going to look at one of the qualities that we're to put on, and we'll get to the rest next week. So in light of our identity, who we are in Christ, we are called to put on compassionate hearts. I love the way the Net Bible, the New English Translation, translates this verse. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with a heart of mercy. I like that. A heart of mercy. Other translations word it this way. Compassionate hearts, heartfelt compassion, a heart of compassion, tender-hearted mercy, bowels of mercy. All of those things are trying to capture a phrase in Greek. Splachna oiktermu. Ooh. Splachna oiktermu. Doesn't that sound lovely? It sounds like a disease you might catch. Or a bounty hunter from Star Wars. Splachna oiktermu is here to see you. It literally means guts of mercy. That's the word splachna. It's the word for the guts, the bowels. The gut was seen as the place of the heart. Like when you go through a breakup or your heart is broken, you don't really feel it here in the center of your chest, do you? Where do you feel it? You feel it in your gut. This is why when you experience stress and heartache and loss and suffering, you know, you, you know disaster and grief, where do you feel You feel it in your gut. That's why they said splachna. That's why it is literally guts or bowels of mercy. Paul is saying, put on bowels or guts of mercy because that's where you feel it. And so because God has been so good to us in Christ, because he's chosen us, set us apart so that we belong to him and we are his beloved ones, because of all of that, we should have a heart of mercy. 
What is mercy? It's not getting what you deserve. Paul is saying, put on, don't give people what they deserve, hearts. Because God has been merciful to you, you show mercy to others. As Jesus himself said in Luke 6.36, be merciful as your Father is merciful. But what do we tend to do? We tend to give people what they deserve, don't we? And we like it, don't we? We like dishing out what people deserve. So we actually reverse Jesus' rule of mercy. But if you are a really merciful person, then you will put yourself in another person's position. You will remember the mercy that was shown to you in Jesus when you didn't deserve it. You remember that God has an I don't give you what you deserve heart, and then you will put on an I don't give people what they deserve heart. So when Jesus talks about mercy, he clears up any confusion that we might have by giving us a very simple rule to follow, one you probably heard your entire life. Do to others what you wish they would do to you. That means we are to ask ourselves a question when we are confronted with the desire to not show mercy to someone who has wronged us. We're to ask ourselves, if I were in that person's position, what would I want done to me? Anytime you don't want to dish out mercy, anytime you want to get revenge and retaliate and just like, you know, pour it on because they deserve it. Anytime you're in that moment and your heart is like, I do not want to give this person mercy. I don't want to show them mercy. You should ask yourself, if I were in their position, what would I want somebody to do to me? Now, Jesus is not telling us that we have to give in to someone's feelings or give in to their demands or we have to be best friends with them, but he is saying that we should think, think, we should think seriously and clearly about what would be best for the other person. Now, of course, putting ourselves in another place goes against everything inside us, and it runs contrary to what we naturally want, which is for others to put themselves in our place. So we reverse Jesus' rule of mercy. We only want others to do for us what we want them to do for us. We don't want to be on the giving end of mercy, just the receiving end. But Jesus says if you're a really merciful person, then you will put yourself in the other person's position and think about what it would feel like to receive mercy and not get what you deserve. To put yourself in someone else's shoes and say, what would it feel like if I were them, if somebody showed them mercy and didn't give them what they deserve? And when you put on an I don't give people what they deserve heart, you will do it with such a tender, caring heart that the person you extend mercy to will actually see Jesus in the compassion and the kindness and the mercy that you share with them. You want to show them Jesus when you do this. Of course, it takes the Holy Spirit to pull this off because we can't do this. We're hardwired to give people what they deserve. You could wake us up in the middle of the night and we're like, I'm ready to give somebody what they deserve. Who is it? That's us. It's how we're wired. And we're really good at it too, aren't we? Some of you are like, oh, I'm not really good at anything. You're good at not giving. I mean, you're good at giving people what they deserve, aren't you? That may be your gift. You wonder like, what am I good at in life? You're good at withholding forgiveness. You're good at not showing mercy. We all are. We're really good at putting on an I give people what they deserve heart. And so understand this, being merciful toward others starts with knowing how much we need mercy from God. If 
you want to be merciful to someone else, you have to step back and think, oh my goodness, God has been so merciful to me, so kind to me. What they've done to me pales in comparison to what I've done to a holy, infinitely glorious God. How can I withhold mercy and forgiveness from this person? When, look at all the things I've done, all the things I did today that would offend a holy God. And I don't want to give mercy. So you have to remember that you desperately need mercy. When you know that you too are spiritually blind and you're a mess and your only hope is Christ's work on the cross for you, then you too will have mercy on others who are spiritually blind and a mess. And so the pattern looks like this. I myself have been very sinful. I am weak. I am miserable. I am in desperate need of God's mercy. I go astray instinctively all the time. I'm, I mess up and I am a mess. And my record of mercy is not good. I'm not good at showing mercy, but God showed his grace to me by giving his son Jesus. Jesus had pity on me and died for me. And because he had pity on me, I show pity to others. I show mercy to others. I give them what they don't deserve because Jesus gave me what I don't deserve. Jack Miller said, by his power, you keep on moving toward others with God's merciful kindness. Jesus is in the business of building a church full of people who persevere in sharing God's mercy by treating the undeserving with compassion, tenderness, and forgiveness. And you need the Spirit to be able to do this. It's because we have been justified and forgiven by Christ that we can be merciful. And so mercy is the fruit that shows that you are rooted in Christ. Because you have been freely given mercy, you share mercy with others. Because you have been pardoned, you know how to pardon others. Because God doesn't give you what you deserve, you don't give others what they deserve. So let me ask you this morning, who do you need to show mercy to? Who in your life do you need to show mercy to? Who in your life do you need to say to yourself, I'm going to put on and I'm not going to give them what they deserve heart? And then how do you do it? Who do you need to show mercy to? Think about someone. And then how do you do that? Well, you don't do it in your own strength, that's for sure. You look to Jesus. You need the Spirit. Ian Duguid said, What will melt our hard hearts and draw us toward God? Is it not reflecting afresh on God's grace and mercy toward us in Christ? When we recall the surprising love and endless forgiveness that God has shown to us, then those laws and duties that once seemed harsh and unbearable are turned into joyful acts of service and love. Showing mercy to people you don't want to show, to, show mercy to that seems unbearable can be turned into a joyful act of service and love. Now let me ask you personally, have you heard and responded to God's invitation to sinners to come to him to find forgiveness and life. Can you say today of Jesus, my beloved is mine and I am his? He calls out to you today. He's calling out to you right now. Come home. Don't let your sin keep you away. Jesus died to pay for every single one of them. Come to the beloved who is calling you home today. Jesus is saying to you, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then remember, 
God loves you. Somebody here today needs to hear that. You know, someone said that to me one time. I was in high school, had gone through a breakup, and I, had, I was at working at this pizza place, and I haven't shared this story. I've shared it with some people, but I was determined to go home and kill myself. I was so heartbroken. I just said, you know what? I'm just going to go home and do it. And I was like taking out the trash or something at this place I was working at, and one of my best friends just pulled up, and he rolled, rolled down the window this way, and he just said, I don't know why but I just felt I needed to come by and let you know that Jesus loves you. And I was like, just hit me to the heart. It was what I needed. Maybe you need to hear that today. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're thinking about taking your life. You need to know Jesus loves you. He cares about you. He's taking care of you. You can trust him today. So let me read the paragraph where I got that big idea, God loves you. I was stopped in my tracks by that very simple truth this week. Here's the paragraph. And if you're struggling to believe that God loves you and cares about you, listen in. Ian Duguid says this. Here is where your true security and significance may be found. The God of the universe so loved you that he sent his only son to come into this world and die for you. You matter to him. He cares for you. Even though you have not cared for him and have run from him, perhaps finding yourself today in a spiritual wilderness far from home, his gaze is nonetheless fixed on you, not just as one human being out of a teeming mass of humanity, but as an individual creation of his hands. As the psalmist said, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Psalm 139. The Lord chose your hair, whether it is like a flock of unruly goats or barely there at all anymore. He painted the color in your cheeks, gave you your teeth, and assigned you your body shape. He created your personality with all its quirks and charms. If you are a Christian, he is at work in you by his Holy Spirit, remaking you into a new creation whose final splendor and glory will be a dazzling thing of wonder for all eternity. God loves you. So when you go to bed tonight and you wake up tomorrow morning, may this be the first thought you have. God loves you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you loved us in eternity past with an everlasting love. Thank you that you drew us to yourself through your loving kindness. Thank you for your mercy. Oh, Lord, there's so many things that we're ashamed of embarrassed about things that we've said and done and thought if we dwell too much on them Lord it's just so paralyzing and yet you have been so merciful to us you don't give us what we deserve that's your mercy and then in grace you give us what we don't deserve your love, your forgiveness and so we just want to take a moment to say thank you we ask you to forgive us, Lord, because our hearts wander all the time. They're so prone to wonder. And your heart is prone to always be reaching out to us in love. And so we just want to say thank you. Just thank you for loving us. In your name we pray, amen.